Hello again and welcome to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now. I'm Glenn Broggett with you on the airwaves of Pioneer 90.1 KSRQ here in Thief River Falls, Minnesota. And if you're listening live on the FM or if you can't make it to the FM dial or you're out of the area, don't forget to check us out. We're available at radionorthland.org. You can listen to us live on our Sunday shift at noon or you can check us out any old time because it'll link you up to our SoundCloud page. It's been six years of Rasslin' Memories interviews, archives, and all kinds of good stuff. And our seventh season has just uh, been underway here. I'm Glenn Brockett. Of course, I have to mention my man. Last week, he survived... I guess the, the, the Bolin Roast, the Kenny Bolin Roast, uh, of course, uh, a guy that takes a lick and keeps on ticking. He's the grizzled veteran. He's out there in his mobile studio. He is ready to go. Mr. Michael McCurdy, welcome to Rasslin' Memories Then and Now. And uh, everything okay uh, post uh, Kenny Bolin? Um, I'm doing all right post Kenny Bolin. I, I've interviewed Kenny before, so I, I knew what I was getting into on that one, and he did not fail to deliver uh, with that interview. I do love the fact that we got a one hour radio edit and then the hour and 21 minute uncensored version. I find that absolutely amazing. We probably could let that man go a couple more hours. I think so. I think, uh, we could probably just, uh, just, you know, throw a question out and he could have just been rapping and rapping for at least two, two and a half hours. But then, you know what? That's a little extra sizzle for next time, uh, you know, to have him on once again. But, yeah, you can check out uh, not only that on our website, radionorthland.org, but we also have it available on our Facebook page, Rasslin' Memories Then and Now. Click like, drop a few comments, see what, you know, let us know what you, if you're liking it, if you don't like it, what you want to see, what you want to hear. That's uh, available at Facebook, uh, yes, Rasslin' Memories Then and Now. Have we uh, ventured out in, further into the waters of uh, social media, Mike? We are venturing further out into the waters of social media. Yes, um, no, no, no updates on it yet. But we do have a Twitter page now. You can find us at Rasslin M on Twitter. You can also find Rasslin Memories then and now on Instagram as well. So, more social media audience for uh, ways for people to find us. And real quick, I would like to uh, also say I mentioned on our Facebook page. I'd like to welcome Brian Westcott to the staff of Rasslin Memories then and now. He is, well, he's kind of our official historian. Anybody on our Facebook page who's noticed these on this day posts and all that, those are all from Brian Westcott, an amazing mind. That guy has forgotten more than most people are ever going to remember. <laughs> so I'm very proud to have him on our staff. He's been working with me for a few years and always enjoyable having the board. Yeah, absolutely appreciate that extra added depth to to the page as far as great historical stuff and uh, what a good guy to get to with with Brian and uh, maybe one of these days we'll have to get him on the program have a sort of uh, a round table discussion uh, we'll have to get a few topics lined up but uh, Mr. McCurdy Grizzled Mr. Grizz if you will uh, you have found a great guest for us and you didn't have to go too far, kind of back to your old stomping grounds uh, in, uh, back in California to find this gentleman. And I'm going to let you kind of give the intro because you're, this is this is your guy and I'm going to learn a little bit more about him as well. I look forward to, to talking to him, but I'm going to let you handle the duties, do the honors, my friend, the Grizzle Vet Mike. You've got the mic. All right. Mr. Grizz here live on the mic. Uh, yes, I very easy to find this gentleman. All I have to do is pick up the phone, dial his number. He's always going to answer for me. But uh, he's a promoter, historian, well-versed in Pacific Northwest wrestling, as well as the Cow Palace. Some very interesting uh, memories and information, some uh, footage and things he's got. But we're going to talk more about that with him. It is my pleasure to bring to Wrestling Memories, because this man is one of the ones that helped break me into the business, and I appreciate that so much. So it is my pleasure to have him on tonight's show, Mr. Joe Souza. Joe, thanks for joining us tonight, man. Indeed, guys. Uh, pleasure to be on. Thanks for uh, asking me to uh, come on. Appreciate it. Well, Joe, we always like talking wrestling memories here on this show. And, of course, I know very well that you have a lot of wrestling memories. So let's just kind of get our listeners a little bit up to speed. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into uh, the business of professional wrestling? Yikes. Uh, yeah, well, hopefully we'll be on a little uh, longer than an hour. Uh, no disrespect to Mr. Boland. Uh, I did hear about him roasting you, so uh, we'll have to talk about that later. But anyway, uh, yeah. <clears throat> as a fan, uh, I got hooked on wrestling when I was about five or six years old. I'm, I'm 54 right now. I'll be 55 in August. Uh, 
my dad, rest his soul, he used to take me to the municipal auditorium in Eureka, which, you know, Eureka, it's about maybe 80 miles south of the Oregon border, right on the coast. And it was the furthest north the, where the Roy Shire territory would come up. They would come up as far as here, the crossover to Redding, and then down to Sacramento and start the gambit with uh, San Francisco, with the Cal Palace, or what have you. So uh, my first uh, vision of uh, seeing big-time wrestling was Ray Stevens and Peter Maivia against Pat Patterson and the Gladiator, which was Ricky Hunter, uh, Hunter under the hood, in a steel cage in Eureka. And at that time, I was hooked. Uh, so got to watch some good wrestling up here, watched on TV. Uh, early 70s, we moved up to Medford, Oregon, which we were a couple of minutes away from Medford Armory. So every other Wednesday night, we got to check out the, the Don Owen territory. And very, very cool. Uh, catching uh, the golden age of the Don Owen territory at that time, as well as Shires. Because living in Medford, on Saturdays, I got to not only watch Portland wrestling live on TV, but I also got to watch big-time wrestling uh, uh, on the Sacramento channel. So very, very cool. Talk about the best of both worlds. But the crack-up about that was, uh, you know, kayfabe was kind of inadvertently broken, if you will, because Lonnie Maine was a good guy up in Portland, but Moondog Maine was a bad guy in San Francisco. And so here I am watching this, and... You know, nine or ten years old, can't quite figure it out. But anyway, you know, keep going, you know, big wrestling fan. Uh, you know, years and years go by, and I finally move up here, back here. While well, he lived in San Jose, and then for a while, then we moved back up here in 84. You know, started, you know, watching a little bit of wrestling again, because it started to morph into what we know as sports entertainment, which I'll give my, I'll give my take on that after a while. But uh, started attending a... Uh, all pro wrestling, APW, Kirk White's version of big time wrestling, and I started taking the camcorder and filming the matches at ringside and making copies for the guys. And one particular night, I was having dinner with Steve Rosano and Jason Styles, and they asked me if I thought about commentating. And I go, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Well, you have a camcorder; you can talk into the cam into the camcorder, just talking to." Him. So the first thing I made the comment was. It's my voice. No one's going to want to listen to what I have to say. Well, it's not what they're listening to your voice. It's what they're hearing what you have to say. So I started practicing, and, you know, my first love has always been the play-by-play -play call. And the people that I pretty much uh, pattern my style around is the four announcers I grew up listening to, being at Walt Harris and Hank Renner out of San Francisco and Frank Bonima and Don Costa out of Portland. So, I, you know, you have all four of those plus a little bit of me, and there you go. I just call the action and that type of thing. And I've done play-by-play -play for many promotion. I've done a little bit for APW, for Kirk White's big-time wrestling, a couple of uh, one-time shot, you know, uh, indies, uh, like an Antioch. They did a special benefit show, what have you. Uh, did some Portland wrestling, Frank Colbertson's Portland wrestling. Uh, called a few dark matches and also called a few house shows. Uh, especially uh, one highlight featured Roddy Piper wrestling uh, Fidel Sierra. Got to call that match. So, you know, very, very cool stuff. Also, I started doing play-by-play -play for the West Coast Wrestling Connection. And after a few years of that, I started doing ring announcing. And so pretty much over the past 20 years plus, I've done play-by-play -play calling on TV up and down the West Coast, plus ring announced uh, a few as well. And that's been going on, you know, for many, many a year. And Mike would come along with me. Uh, he'd come along as a fan and, you know, the travel from our house up to Portland or Salem or whichever the town is uh, in Oregon. But one particular night or day, excuse me, day, we, uh, we were driving. And out of left field, Mike tossed this question to me. He goes, Joe, what would it take to do a show in our hometown? And like, What? And he repeated it again. And I go, are you talking like a bot show? Where uh, Pranny said, no. You've been in enough dressing rooms and you've done, you know, enough stuff where, you know, probably one of the last things, you know, on your bucket list is to promote or book a show. And I'd like to help you with that. And I told him, you know, money is the issue. And he proceeded to tell me, you know, you proceeded to tell me, don't worry about it. And I told him, no. 
I go, <clears throat> I'm telling you right now, you're going to lose money. And for, I kid you not, for three years, Mike pestered me. Uh, Joe, let's do this. No. Joe, no. And he would actually ask my kids. They're both, they're adults now, but when they were little kids, Mike, Jessica, why don't you talk to your dad? And they pretty much said, if dad told you no, can you imagine what he's going to tell us? And she, and he did, and he did the same thing with my wife, Arlene. And Arlene pretty much did the same thing. And, and you know, he kept going, you know, for three years plus. And finally, I asked him, I go, are you sure you want to do this? Because there's a lot riding on what is going to happen. Because for starters, we don't have a ring, let alone we don't have any talent. And the nearest talent is seven to eight hours to the north and to the south. So anything can happen. And it's kind of like the mafia thing. Once you're in, you're in. There's no turning back. So he said, uh, yeah. I said, okay, so we did it. We, uh, I secured a ring, so I thought. Uh, these two young guys, I won't mention their names, uh, their, their uncle or some family member, I guess, had a Mack truck and the trailer broke and they couldn't bring the ring down. And this was two weeks away before showtime. And they knew this for a couple of months. So we, you know, threw some feelers out and thank goodness Sparky Ballard, you know, answered. And then it's kind of like, wait a minute, Joe, I know you. And I go, yeah, I know you too. We've worked together, uh, at a fog city wrestling show in blue Lake, which is about five minutes east of where I live a few years previous. So he brought the ring and we did the show and drew a little under 200 people, which, you know, not bad for a first time effort. And the crack up was the venue called us and said, there's a problem. The problem was several days after the fact, their phones were ringing off the hook. Well, if we knew wrestling was back in town. We would have went. So they posed the question, how do you feel about doing it again? And I wasn't ready for the answer, and neither was he, because this was supposed to be like a one-time shot, check it off the bucket list, thank you very much, we're done. Well, so I was like, okay, let's do this again. And so we did it again. But hold on for a second. <clears throat> I didn't want to talk, cough in your guys' ear. Uh, almost doubled the crowd and broke even. And within a 12-month swing, you go from losing X amount of dollars to breaking even, which was pretty cool. And I incorporated some sponsors. I figured let's, uh, let's, let's start, you know, trying sponsors and this type of thing. And it worked. And the cool thing with, I'm not going to go into every single year what's going on, but every, all the wrestlers that's come in, they love this area strictly because the crowd is very old school. And, you know, the gimmicks and all the stuff that they may do, wherever they wrestle for won't work here. It's basically good guys and bad guys. But basically that's how I got my teeth cut into the business with the play by play, the ring announcing and now promoting and booking and a few other things. And of course, let's not forget. You also were a uh, co-host of a fairly popular podcast for about two and a half, about two years, I believe. But yeah, you know, other stories, other stories. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It's like, ah, my face is turning blue. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I was, a. Uh, uh, co-host on a particular uh, podcast a few years back with you, Mike, and we did it for a couple of years, and uh, it was cool. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. You, you yes, were part of the original talk. Kenny Bolin roast. Actually, Mr. Bolin never really uh, roasted me. Uh, I got the sway away from that, and I asked him uh, the right questions, and uh, he was good to me. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> Now, in the 20 plus years you've been in this, Joe, um, I've been along with you and I've gotten to meet a lot of, you know, great names, just great names. But you yourself also have encountered a lot of people that, you know, some of our current fans are going to know who are just some of the names that you've had a chance to get to see, you know, as they're up and coming or maybe just kind of doing the indie circuit. Well, a couple of people that come to mind is. Brian Danielson, for uh, you younger folk, Daniel Bryan. Uh, I've not only got to meet him, but I actually got to call a couple of his matches up in Portland uh, many, many years ago uh, when he was the American Dragon, uh, pre-Ring of Honor, pre-WWEF, whatever, that type of thing. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, very, very good friend of mine. I know him, know his mom. Uh, some of the people that I've had the honor to call matches, Greg Valentine, the Honky Tonk Man, Hawkeye Shane Cody, 
Jimmy Snuka, Kamala, the Ugandan giant, uh, just, just, just to name a few, uh, Tony Kazina, Jerry Lynn, Dr. Luther, the, the list goes on and on. Now also you have a connection. You have a really strong connection to, uh, the Cow Palace wrestling line and, in the, the form of the video footage on Can you tell us a little bit about a woman named Dorothy Hopkins and a little bit of her story and how that relates to you? Oh, yes, indeed. Dorothy Hopkins, she was a confidant to uh, the, the talent for Roy Shires, a very close friend of uh, the crew, especially Pat Patterson. And as a matter of fact, she made all of Pat's ring jackets and made a few uh, Pepper Gomez's and Ray Stevens and a few others. She used to take a movie camera to uh, the ring and she would film the match. It was like watching home movies at ringside. And I got her phone number from Alan Bolte, a beloved ring announcer at the Cow Palace from 1974, 75, I believe, till the, the end of the Shires run, which was 80, 1981. Now, I called him and I asked him if, if he knew anybody that had video. And he gave me Dorothy's number. And so we called and started talking and became good friends on the phone. And within a month, she sent me a couple of 400-foot reels, just basically on just talking on the phone, which I had transferred to VHS. And what I saw, my jaw hit the ground. These were all the off-television tele- off big events at the Cow Palace, uh, not complete matches because, like I said, uh, you know, 400 foot reels is only a certain amount of time. So a lot of important stuff like Pat Patterson's baby face turn, uh, Pat versus Ray, uh, Pat versus Lonnie May. It was mostly a Pat. Well, fast forward a couple of years later to early 1989, we go down to San Francisco and I meet Dorothy and we hang out the whole day. And at that time, she was planning on moving to Kimar, Louisiana. And she gave me all of her film. And she gave me uh, one of the beautiful ring robes that she was going to have Pat wear, but it was more or less for Rupert Collins. But, well, unfortunately, uh, you know, stupid things happen with the robe, and I'm, I'm not going to go into that. I kick myself in the pants every so often. But back to the film. So I just hang out. I hung on to the film because she was planning on moving to Kimar, Louisiana. And as soon as I hear from her, I would mail her the film. Well, she says, if you don't hear from me, Joe, the film is yours, and I trust you'll do the right thing. And I'm kind of thinking, what? You're you're kidding. Well, you know, that was that. She moved to Kim R and never heard from her again. Meanwhile, 1991 comes, and Don Owen just lost TV. But he still ran for, like, maybe a few more months. So we went up to Eugene and Portland for a Friday night and Saturday night show. And that Friday night show, I got to hang out in the back with Playboy Buddy Rose, Ron Don Harris, the Bruce Brothers, Mike Miller, Steve Dahl. Well, anyway, you know, me and Buddy, we talked a lot, and I mentioned Dorothy Hopkins, and he mentioned, you know, she died a year ago. I went, no. It turned out she went to find her final resting place in Kemar, Louisiana. I don't know if she knew anybody there, but that was the place she found, and, you know, she's no longer with us. But... I told Buddy what I have, and he said, oh, my God, do you know what you have? Well, several hundred dollars later, I had them all transferred to VHS, and it's basically I have 13 hours of footage from the Cow Palace from 1972 to 1978. Uh, Even some of the gimmick matches, the Battle Royals, Andre the Giant, Jack Briscoe defending the world title twice against Lonnie Main. Anybody that you mentioned that went through the Cow Palace for Shires, I have on video at least a few seconds to a few minutes, which I transferred to DVD. I have a DVD recorder, and and I've edited a few things for uh, Pat Patterson, which on Pat's documentary on the WWE Network, uh, the thing that he did uh, when he plugged his book and what have you, there's a little bit of footage, which is my footage, you know, that made it there, as well as another dear friend, uh, James Fitzpatrick. He has a little bit of awesome footage there, too. But, yeah, that's the story with, uh, besides the stuff that's been floating around, the, the TV tapings and what have you, the, the Dorothy Hopkins footage, I can safely say it belongs to me. So, there you go.
and this is footage that, you know, so our listeners understand, this is footage you're not going to find on, you know, the WWE Network or another streaming network. This is officially just your footage. This is home video footage that's not available. Right, right. Now, there's a couple of people that, that have a little bit. Uh, my dear friend Rock Rims, uh, big, big uh, Cal, uh, Northern California his wrestling historian. Uh, oh, my God. That guy is such a flipping history book. He's awesome. And, and I sent him a little bit of footage, which he's put on the fans of Big Time Wrestling site, which I gave him permission, and that type of thing. But eventually, I'm going to do a deal where I'm going to copyright the footage, and I might do something with it down the road. I don't know. But it's just one of those wait-and-see things. But, you know... Quoting Dorothy, I can safely say it's in good hands. So I'm very pleased and proud to uh, her trusting me to have such a iconic collection, dare I say. All right, well, I'm going to bring Glenn into the conversation because I'm sure he's heard a few names in there that he'd like to ask a little more about. So, Glenn, I'm going to hand the microphone over to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And first of all, I want to ask just about those tapes. Have you received any, uh, like any sort of extra attention, any offers, uh, for the, for those tapes, uh, to kind of take care of them, take them off your hands or, uh, has it been kind of quiet on that front, uh, through the years? Because this is some really, uh, good lost, uh, stuff that, uh, you know, previously could have been just, you know, lost to the scrap heap of history. Through the past several years, there's been, there's been a couple of people that have asked, and there's a couple of people that actually have a little bit of it and they tried to sell it and they would call me and, Hey, I hear you like cow palace footage. Why have this, this, this. And then I kind of politely say, well, yours is granny. Yours is like sixth or seventh generation. I have the original and no, I'm not interested. So, I mean, there, I mean, there, and there's, there's been a few, uh, there's been a few inquiries, but I just want to really keep a tight grip on it. And eventually maybe I might, you know, release it, you know, for sale or start, you know, putting it out on the friends of big time wrestling site. Or, uh, another thing I've been kind of thinking about is the professional wrestling, wrestling hall of fame, the real pro wrestling hall of fame in Wichita Falls, Texas. So, so, I mean, there's so much stuff going by, but of course I won't, you know, I'm not going to leave empty handed. I'm going to make sure I have a set at least for myself. But, but I mean, there's been a lot of people asking, because, you know, the names I just mentioned, you know, Stevens, Patterson, Gomez, Shibuya, Saito, uh, even some of the people that made it to Cal Palace once or twice, like Ivan Koloff, uh, Bob Roop. I even have a little bit of footage of Nick Bockwinkle at the Cal Palace. Oh, that'd be great in to a see. match where, where uh, hang on your hack, because uh, Mike gave me heads up, because you're in Minnesota, you're an AWA guy. Uh, he lost to Tony Roca. Imagine that. Get out of here. That. No, for real. Uh, and I'm pretty sure when Nick came in, uh, this was probably one of the few times that, you know, when Ray came in, you know, with Nick from uh, Minneapolis, because uh, Ray was still a big-time babyface here. And so he probably came in to headline to take on Pat or something, and he talked Roy into putting Nick on the undercard against Tony Roca. So, I mean, that's... Uh, that, like I said, just uh, assumption. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, you talk about Ray, Ray Stevens. I mean, what a guy. I mean, when you talk about the San Francisco big time wrestling days of the into the 60s and 70s, uh, the name Ray Stevens, along with the Cow Palace, really just synonymous when people talk about that part of the country and just what was going on. And, you know, Ray, along with Pat Patterson, I mean, some of the, the big the big guns here that have also had some great success in, in the territories, but have a real special place in the heart of fans uh, in Northern California. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, even to this day, to this day, uh, <clears throat> I mean, people, I mean, the young folk can talk about, you know, Hogan and, you know, The Rock and Austin and all the other uh, current uh, talent, per se. But, well, all comes right down to it. You know, Ray Stevens is synonymous with uh, San Francisco wrestling. And I want to throw a little, uh, I'll throw a little curve here. I don't know if you know this or not, but... It's uh, it's uno- it's unofficial, but I mean there is documentation. Uh, Ray in 1967, I believe, he defeated Bruno San Martino to win the Worldwide Wrestling Federation Championship at the Cow Palace. 
And that was just one of uh, Bruno's. Uh, how many, he, did he make a lot of appearances out there? It didn't sound like he made too many appearances, but really, there he went over. It, Stevens went over clean. Well, well, Bruno's been in. Bruno wrestled in San Francisco a couple of maybe twice, and I'm assuming this might be one of the trips to uh, Japan. And you know, back in those days, there was no cable TV, no internet, so the people in New York. I mean, you know, Bruno, for all I know, he may have gotten injured per se, and so he was gone for a few weeks, but. No, they did a big thing in San Francisco where uh, Bruno would defend the world title against Ray's U.S. title, title versus title. And, uh, and it was never acknowledged in New York, not even close. Uh, but, yeah, Ray won the match on the countout, and back in those days, the countouts were considered clean finishes. So he won the match and the title. But then uh, they had an emergency meeting, according to Walt Harris, because I have, oh, I also have on audio tape, I transferred from reel-to-reel audio tapes, uh, the audio of the Shire TV tapings on Channel 2 from the 60s, where that was like the hotspot where Ray was the big-time bad guy. Somebody had one of those reel-to-reel tape recorders and put the microphone in front of the TV and recorded. I have... From 1965 to 1969 or 70, uh, it took me three years to transfer all of it to audio cassette, but it was a labor of love. I mean, got it done, that type of thing. But I guess the storyline was, you know, Ray won, no, Ray won the match, uh, but there was an emergency meeting where Ray was stripped of the title, given back to Bruno, because the way he won it, he cheated, ref took a bump, Ray gives Bruno a low blow, which shoots him out of the ring, and Bruno got counted out. And then Ray had, he was on probation for 60 days. He got fined $1,000. And if he got caught doing anything like that, again, he'll be suspended for two years, which set up the rematch the next month at the Cow Palace, which they went the full three falls of the two-hour three-fall match. And it went to a one-hour draw. So I also forgot to tell you, I also have uh, the audio from the 60s, but I also have uh, film or video in the cop house in the 70s so i pretty much have that pretty much uh rack uh, rat racked up if you will mm-hmm. i want to talk about just you know what really as a fan when you started watching and getting and listening and getting involved you know paying attention to wrestling what were some of the uh the guys that, that, that you really love what popped out on the tv to you that that really kind of you know got you hooked into this uh, and got you watching and getting you to, out to the arenas. Can you talk about who, who first really caught your fancy, who kept you, uh, your, your attention, and, 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 who, who, and what else as far as that leading to your first wrestling live show that you attended? Oh, well, the first wrestling live show, I was, six, I was five or six years old, so I didn't really watch wrestling on TV, you know, being five years old. So. Mm-hmm. so, of course, I went with mom and dad, but... Uh, you know, then started to watch it on TV. We'd go over to my grandma and grandpa's house because living here in Arcata, you know, cable TV was a rarity because uh, parts of Arcata, they didn't have the cable wires or the underground lining where you couldn't have cable wasn't uh, available. So we'd go to their house and watch National All-Star Wrestling. Uh, Peter Maivia, Ray Stevens, and Bobby Shane were the first three that got my attention. Uh for San Francisco. But then as I got a little bit older, you know, the ones I couldn't stand, Pat Patterson, but then when he turned good, that was really cool, that type of thing. And then when we moved to Medford, Oregon, uh, the first guy that I saw that had me hooked with Don Owens was Dutch Savage. Oh, the man who brought us the coal miner's glove, Mr. Dutch Savage. Yes. And I can safely say uh, Dutch Savage, uh, you know, rest his soul, very, very good friend of mine. Uh, uh, had the honor to meet him a few times and back in 2011, I believe, or early 2012, uh, I went to Dean Silverstone's final pro wrestling reunion in Issaquah, Washington, where, you know, got to see Don Manukian, Dutch Savage, Ed Moretti, Ed Wyskowski, Don Leo, sitting in the den with Dutch Savage and Don Leo Jonathan, and I'm just sitting on the floor. And they're just talking and carrying on. And then they look at me and, hey, kid, what do you think? And I went, hey, pay me no mind, man. Just think of me as a booger underneath the table. I'm just, can I take a picture of you guys conversing? He said, yeah, yeah. So, so I you know, took a picture of that and sent it to his daughter, uh, Mitzi Stewart, which, you know, very, very grateful for that. And like I said, there's, there's been 
so many wrestlers, you know, indie wrestlers, legends, ladies, whatever. I mean, there's so many people I've met. I mean, I, it would take a month of Sundays to mention. And I'd say about 95% of them, percent of them uh, value their friendships. There's a, there was a couple of hiccups. But, I mean, in life, it is what it is. I mean, that's how it goes. Mm-hmm. Make any sense? I think you made a proper crystal sense. Uh, now, as far as like uh, who helped you kind of op- who opened doors for you to kind of get to uh, know some of the wrestlers, and when did that happen? Because you're talking about going to you were at Dean Silverstone's uh, his big bash uh, with, with some of the guys. I mean, to get a, get an in at some of these uh, gatherings, these reunions, it's not something you just ask and, and it'll simply give it to you. You got to find the right circles and channels. Uh, how did you find your way uh, about in the pro wrestling business? Not only just being a fan, but getting in and in, in behind the scenes and getting to know some of these guys yeah um <clears throat> well starting when i started doing the play-by-play in the ring announcing uh i just kept to myself i just uh instead of getting involved in the politics and the drama and all that bunch of stuff i just do what i do and people were actually keeping an eye on on me doing this uh they saw footage of me either ring announcing or doing the play-by-play. And they said, dang, you do a real good job. And I go, well, thank you. Uh, and I just, I just keep going. Uh, you know, Pat Patterson, you know, he at Cauliflower Alley, he asked me to go with him. So we went into this room and he let me pick his brain and he picked my brain and which was pretty cool. And Pepper Martin, you know, they just, you know, we've been watching what you've been doing. And Alan Bolte, you know, I called a show in Oakland, which Alan sat right behind me and during intermission, he comes and goes, Joe, you're, I just want to say you're doing a really good job. And yes, I was listening to your play-by-play. So it was like word of mouth. It's like, you know, Joe behaves himself. Just He just does his job. That's all he does. And I try not to step on any toes. I you know, try to make as many friends as I can, sincere friendships. And as for Dean Silverstone, uh, going to Cauliflower Alley for uh, the first few years, he kept an eye on me on what I do and how I handle and carry myself as well as with my wife, Arlene, which yesterday we had our 22nd wedding anniversary. We got married on the 4th of July in 1996. Oh, wow. A little bit of a shout out to Mrs. Joe, but I'll explain why she's known as Mrs. Joe later. But anyway, so Dean, you know, watching and we got the interview. Uh, no, not interview, but the, uh, 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 oh my invitation. That's right. We got the invitation to go. And so, yeah, we, yeah, we went to Issaquah and it was quite, it was quite a deal just hanging out on the, on the lake and behind his house. And we just talked and carried on and, and all these folks I can actually not only call colleague, but call friend. And, and it means a lot. It, It really means a lot to me. You know, as a viewer, you know, watching, you, you get a chance to check out both Portland and big time wrestling. Uh, could you talk about some of the the differences that, between the product or between those two products and their personalities that were running the show? We're talking about the Owen family, uh, Don Owen, and of course uh, down in San Francisco and big time, uh, we're talking about Mister uh, Professor Ray, Roy Shire. You talk about uh, the differences in, you know, between those two companies just because, you know, from one promoter to another, basically? Their styles, believe it or not, were actually about the same. The styles were, uh, their, their styles were actually about the same. Uh, now, as for uh, TV, now the TV tapings for Shires, it was done at the Channel 40 studios, and they were done like on Tuesday nights. And the shows were just one, it was basically like a one-hour infomercial. Uh, they'd have like three or four matches and in between they'd have the interviews and then they would do the, uh, the big announcement for San Francisco or Sacramento or an, up here in this case, Eureka and that type of thing. Now in Portland, back in the day, eight, from 8.30 to 9, you got to watch Portland wrestling live from the Portland sports arena. And at 10 o'clock, it would go off the air and air something else. But the reason they did that was because they held the, 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 had the last two matches. They're not going to show the entire card because if that's the case, it wouldn't bring people to the show. And later, around 80 or 81, they just started uh, videotaping it because uh, it moved to the 11 o'clock or 11.30 time slot. So people would go watch Portland wrestling and then drive home and watch themselves on TV, that type of thing. But no, the styles are about the same. Uh, some of the characters were mixed. For example, 
Dutch Savage, big time baby face up in Portland, big time heel in San Francisco because every time he came down, he would wrestle Pat Patterson. Pat, baby face here, heel up in San Francisco, uh, up in Portland, which kind of goes back to the uh, dilemma, if you will, with Lonnie Maine being a good guy up in Portland, but Moondog Maine was a big time heel in San Francisco until he had the inevitable baby face turn. But, uh, very, very solid crews, both Shires and uh, Don Owen. Uh, as for the politics and all that, not too sure about it. Uh, you know, I still haven't really read through Rock Rims' book yet. I'm kind of going through like a kid in a candy store. But very, very solid. Uh, they Both promotions did not insult the intelligence of the wrestling fan. Uh, if they did something, because it meant something, whether it be a baby face turn or a heel turn, and that's what I incorporate in my promotion, Rumble in the Redwoods. Uh, the same philosophy, the same mentality, and the fans have really grasped it and embraced it with both arms. Mm-hmm. Now you, I, I hope that ex- I hope that explains it. I think you made a, a good accounting for yourself there. But uh, Joe, I want to talk about the territories, and I want to talk about in the '80s when the things started to, to start to wind down with some of these big parts of the country, these big wrestling uh, hotspots were suddenly either you know going out of business or fighting to the, the bitter end before finally giving going out of the business. What can you you know remember in your own personal account uh, you know with with the territories and, and, and the system you know it's starting to, to die. When did you start to notice that uh, these companies were starting to, uh, to kind of fall back uh, in, in, in the shadow of course of what uh, Vince McMahon was starting to bring in with uh, what would become more designated as sports entertainment? Oh, it was a really tough time for me because of January 15th, 1980, my dad passed away. And he was only 43 years old. Uh, died of emphysema. Uh, he was the one that got me hooked in wrestling. He'd, he'd take me to the matches and that type of thing. Uh, about that same time, the San Francisco stuff started to slow down. Uh, I heard Hank Renner, you know, well, you know, we're no longer running. We'll see you next week from wherever. And I was like, what? And it was no longer on Channel 44. But then again, a week later, on the Spanish-speaking channel, they were airing big-time wrestling, but it wasn't the big-time wrestling that I've watched with the Shires. You see, Don Owen actually had two shows, had Portland Wrestling and had a syndicated show called Big Time Wrestling, which was one hour. And he and that was where he aired the last three matches, the main event included. But that was for away from Portland, like Seattle, Vancouver, Canada, Anchorage, Alaska, and San Francisco. The Portland guys would come in San Francisco and lasted two shows, and that was about it. And then, they, then the guys from Kansas City came in. And at that time, it was only San Francisco. They would come in once every three or four weeks, or if not, once a month. And then finally, the last two shows uh, had the guys from Florida. And at that time, Vern got, uh, there was a new channel called Channel 20. And I looked, and it had AWA All-Star Wrestling. It's like, whoa, okay. So Leo Namalini was the promoter. Uh, if you will. So AWA came in and started running. And, you know, they had their crew and plus a couple of the locals like uh, Pepper Gomez and Al Madrill. And, uh, and the unique thing, I knew that Ray and Pat were bad guys in Minneapolis, but they kept the storyline uh, respectively for Shires because well, they're not going to have Pat and Ray work heels in San Francisco. So, you know, Pat and Ray would be, uh, you know, the ultimate baby faces as usual, and they would be beating up Bobby Heenan and Nick Bockwinkle and that type of thing. And, uh, yeah, so it, it was weird, uh, but I, I didn't know what was going on. Now, if I can back up a little bit, Shires did a double shot, uh, a Saturday night in San Jose and a Sunday in San Francisco with uh, the Kansas City guys. And during the intermission, I went to the box office, and there was Mr. Roy Shire. And we talked for about a half hour, and I asked him, I go, why? And he confided in me, and he said, well, Joe, 
yeah, I had uh, I had a checkup with the doctor, and I'm not doing too good. My heart, you know, I got you know, heart, high blood pressure, hypertension, and I had a choice: either to start letting go of the wrestling, or I let go of being on the chairman of the Grand National, the, the rodeo that they have once here at the Cow Palace, which might explain why he ran the Cow Palace for so long because he got the Cow Palace very cheap because he was on the Grand National. So that's why he started to wean the, the wrestling a little bit. But then again, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. But, you know, anyway, saw, you know, the, the AWA product and it was okay. You know, uh, and out of nowhere, 1983 comes and on the San Jose channel, I'm watching WWF Championship Wrestling. And that was when Vince Jr., you know, and, you know, little did we know, you know, that's when he came out and, well, you know, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really, I really miss the territory days. I mean, San Francisco and Portland, uh, you know, say what you will, you know, there's a lot of piss in the moaning about, there's no competition and there's no, and our shows ratings wise are really bad. Well, if you keep airing the same stuff over and over again, you know, it's like, get a clue. People want to see pro wrestling. They don't want to keep watching sports entertainment. But once again, that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. So. That had to have broken your heart though. Uh, to see these territories start to fall and then you turn on your TV and you're starting to see more of a, a nationalized product uh, with, with Vince McMahon and the WWF with names that you may have remembered and may have known, but it just didn't seem quite the same as the, uh, the old school territory stuff. No, it didn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, well, when they first came on, uh, even going with uh, Vern and the AWA, uh, about half the crew was AWA, and the other half was uh, whatever local people were left here, whether it be Ed Moretti, Jerry Monty, Pepper Gomez, Al Madrill, and these same folks would come in and wrestle for Vince Jr. Uh, you know, the first show I went, the first WWF show I went to was in San Jose at the municipal stadium a little minor league ballpark it was raining <laughs> and uh and it wasn't that bad of, and it wasn't that bad of a show uh the main event was andre against big john stud which he slammed stud and then you know had jimmy snooker against morocco which they both wrestled for shire so no surprise to the fans there uh pat patterson took on alexis smirnoff once again no surprise there because smirnoff and patterson you know uh shire alumni Red Bastine, Steve Party, Buddy Rose, Rocky Johnson. So there was a lot of a local feel, but, you know, give or take several months to a year, that all got weaned out to basically what you saw on TV. Uh, it was just them that they showed up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring back uh, the grizzled vet, Mike McCurdy, who's uh, out in his mobile studio. Mike, I'm going to bring you in to... Uh well, we've got some time left in the program, but I'm going to let you kind of carry the load here uh, for the next few minutes with Joe. Well, Joe, what I'd like to talk about a little bit now is, you know, we've talked the territories and kind of the dissolution of the territories, unfortunately, in the 80s. But what you've done, and I'm going to say you've done this, Joe, because I was there the first three years, but you took Rumble in the Redwoods, which was supposed to be, like you said, a one-night thing. It was our one and done. We weren't doing it again. And you've turned it sort of into your own territory. You brought an old-school pro wrestling back and created a, a small territory. And there are obviously the local territories around Texas, you know, everywhere are popping back up. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, Rumble in the Redwoods and how Oregon and San Francisco and the influence that they've had on your current product. Wow. Well, <clears throat> well as you know, I, as a kid, you know, that's what I grew up on was San Francisco and Portland. And after the third show, you know, the big, uh, you know, when you, um, you know, moved to Texas and there was a lot of talk and, you know, about, you know, Joe, uh, you know, cause I mean, like I said, it does cost a pretty pain to do this and that type of thing, which, you know, it ain't cheap. And the big question was, you know, Joe, are you going to keep it going? And my kids came up and said, dad, you've worked your butt off. I mean, this is, it's old hat for you. You just keep it going. And I made the comment, I go, well, if I plan on doing this, there's got to be things that, you know, I got to see done the way I see fit. And so I talked to my daughter, Patty, and I go, here's the deal. Let's do up another, 
sponsor a deal with the condition, if the show doesn't go, they get their money back. And with, with some promotions, they actually, well, you know, you, uh, please be our sponsor, but there's no guarantee we're going to do it, and we don't know we can give you your money back and that type of thing. Kind of like a used car salesman thing. And I said, no, I've, this is something that has to be done. And uh, for the fourth show, it turned out that you know, got, I had got like 22, 23 sponsors. And, and I went through uh, the talent pool, and I booked it as I would watching a Shires or a Don Owens show. And I knew that the fans would clamor for this because, I mean, as you know, the fans here are very old school, extremely old school. To see a certain wrestler dress up like a clown or a genie or something in San Francisco, which might be the hip thing, would go like a fart in church here. So that person would have to go under his own persona or that type of thing. So went ahead, pieced it together and uh, had the Redwood Rumble, which is basically the Royal Rumble, but I can't say, you know, uh, Royal, so it was the Redwood Rumble. And I made a storyline out of it where Andre the Giant, you know, she lost her match earlier that night, and she came storming back to uh, win the Rumble, which a lot of the, the booking, which, I mean, we all know it's a work, and, you know, okay, whatever. Uh, my style of booking is kind of like between Roy Shires and Don Owen. I only do the finish, and it's up to them to come up from point A to point Y, and then the rest is the, the go home. Now, the fourth show, the one thing I'm really proud on is I actually brought uh, Gregory James and Barrett Brown here to do a dog collar match, and they were both nervous. I mean, I told them about it. And it's kind of funny. I mean, if uh, Barrett, if you're hearing this, you know, I love you, man. I love you too, Greg. You know, he called me and said, you know, hey, why can't we do just a, fly, a high-flying grudge match? And I knew that they were nervous because they never had a dog collar match before. And I go, why don't you have a sit-down, Barrett? First of all, you go to dinner and you see your plate. You know, you have the entree, the vegetable, the dessert, and the garnish. What does the garnish do? Well, it makes the plate look good. That's what the dog collar and the chain is going to do. Because I'm assuming they were, they were thinking I was expecting Craig Valentine and Roddy Piper at Starcade or Killer Tim Brooks and Buddy Rose. And Porn said, no, 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 no. So, you know, we went over things. And you saw the footage, Mike. You saw the match. And like I said, uh, for, you wouldn't have known. It was their first time in the dog collar, which was cool. And uh, the entire card, from the opening to the very end, the crowd was nonstop loud. I mean, it was such an unusual feel. Uh, as soon as I went back to the dressing room, uh, you know, I told Arlene, you know, the garbage can, you know, had to go, and because I, you know, bought the garbage can the day before, which was used in the match in the girls' match with Glenn, with uh, Andre and Sage and Supreme. Well, Arlene comes up to me and goes, "Dear, the garbage can has to go home." And I go, "What? Why?" Everybody was so pleased with what happened because uh, we started at 7, we were done at 9.15. I told them, we'll be done early. And everybody signed the garbage can, and Andrea wrote, to Joe, best damn show ever. And that, I was, I was taken aback for it. And I can safely say the garbage can is in the, the other bedroom just sitting there. I would grab everybody. So. But everybody was so pleased and like I said, it's the old school type of booking. You don't insult the fans' intelligence. And you just, you make it simple. Good guys are cheered, bad guys are booed. Which is what I instilled in this fifth edition of Rumble in the Redwoods from this past March 24th, which I incorporated a championship belt, the Pacific North Coast Championship, which I had Boyce Legrand take on Humboldt's Rocket Boy Brett, old school, two out of three falls. Uh, but the entire card, old school booking, keep it simple. And the wrestlers that have wrestled up here from the first show up to this one here, they go back to where they come from, but they all talk about this area. They go, I mean, we wrestle in front of crowds at 50 or 100 or 200 or whatever, but it's something about 
Northwestern California. We go up to Rumble in the Redwoods, and it's it's a it's a whole different animal. It's a very old school animal. Uh, not that I'm to my own horn. If I do, I sincerely apologize. And I actually teared up when I read this comment. Uh, it was the results of the fifth show, and one of the members from the when it was big time wrestling site basically said that my uh, my promotion Rumble in the Redwoods is the reincarnation of the Shires territory, and I teared up. I went I. Put, I wasn't quite expecting that. I mean, basically all I'm doing is I'm just booking as if I would enjoy going to a wrestling show because I'm not going to put something together that I'm going to think it stinks. I mean, if that makes any sense and all. So Now, um, I want to talk about this because I don't know, Joe, if honestly this, this, this kid will ever get you know, a recognized on a radio show, but I'd like to have the chance to talk to him. He's a good friend of mine. He's a good friend of yours. And we used him on our second show. And now you know who I'm talking about. No clue. He wanted to work our show. He came in. He got put in a Mac. He, you know what happened to him. But over the years, you know, we began, we started it back with number three and up to number five. He was in the main event. I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about, kind of the evolution of a young man named Rocket Boy Brett who became the hometown hero in Humboldt County to show the, we basically created somebody the fans got behind and you can't do that in wrestling nowadays. No, Brett Walters, uh, good, good guy. Uh, well, I kind of have to thank Martin Morin for, uh, from WPW Lucha. Uh, cause the first couple of years, at the Humboldt County Fair in Ferndale, they would have the Lucha. The, the Mex- they would have a Mexican day, so they'd have uh, the Luchadors come in. And Brett, at that time, was from Southern California. And he came up, and very, very intriguing. And then we found out that he moved up here. I guess when he came up here, he just fell in love with this area, and there you go. I mean, he attended HSU, Humboldt State University, and still worked matches down south, which that was when we came up with the idea, well, he, he lives here. Technically, he is a local boy, so let's, let's run with this. And so, you know, his debut was the second show, which he, we, uh, we saw him get folded up, folded up like a very uh, cheap accordion. Thank you, uh, Mr. Dr. Cleaver and Wade Hedson company for that one. Uh, and then we fast forward to the third one where I came up with this uh, idea. I was like, okay, in order to really hype the, the hometown deal, plus he attends HSU, that's when, you know, I checked into it and did it, and it worked, have the HSU Marching Lumberjack Band come in and play the fight song as his entrance music. And... It worked. I mean, that play, I mean, you could hear that, that roof, Mike, as you know, it just flew off the building. They played the fight song. Brett came out and the fans just got behind him. Hey, he's one of, he's, he's one of ours, which, yeah, I mean, he's very, very solid kid, very good talent, very good boy, well-behaved, uh, does everything the right way. And I couldn't ask for more. And, you know, like he did with the second and third show. And in the, the, the fourth show, he teamed up with Americos. Uh, WWE uh, wrestler for a couple of times, and and that was pretty cool because uh, this was actually his first time to wrestle before the Beast. What I mean by that is the the great fans up here the past uh, five years. I mean, the fans have just been rabid. The fans have been old school, and they've taken to Brett. And this is Brett's first time working in front of a huge crowd like that. And being that said, when I put together the North Coast Championship belt, I figured what better match for an inaugural title match is between Brett against the 20, 25 year veteran boys Legrand in a classic two off three fall one hour time limit match. And Brett came close. He came dang close within a second. And, and he still wrestles. He goes up to Oregon and Washington and he still drives down to Southern California every weekend and I already gave him heads up, just like oh, I'm going to drop the announcement now. Uh, Saturday, March the 30th, 2019. I know it's a ways away, but Rumble in the Redwood 6, 
it's coming. Now, I'm going to, before I pass the phone back over to Glenn, I'm going to ask you a question, Joe. And you sort of alluded to this earlier. Um, very old school fan, grew up Portland, grew up San Francisco wrestling. What is your current, what is your take on the current scene in professional wrestling? Because I also know that this weekend you will be at the G1 special at the Cow Palace with New Japan. But what is your current, your take on the current scene in professional wrestling? Okay, uh, I'm going to see how, how I can uh, uh, be uh, diplomatic about this, if you will. Okay, uh, no, please do. We want to be on the air next Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Mike, you know how I feel about sports entertainment, first and foremost. And sports entertainment, I can't stand it. I am a professional wrestling promoter, ring announcer, play-by-play, uh, -play, whatever. Uh, that's why I grew up on this, professional wrestling not watching three hours of something to where two hours and 45 minutes is nothing but talk. And the rest is just a few seconds here and there. Uh, New Japan, I don't think it's going to duplicate what it did 20, 30 years ago uh, when you had, you know, Brody, Hanson, Baba, Anoki, those guys. I mean, it's not going to happen. I mean, it, it, it's just not. Uh, but the, the New Japan product now, I'm impressed. It's very, very good stuff. Uh, when I found out that they were coming out here to North, Northern California, the Cal Palace, my brother uh, Raymond said, we got to go to that. And so, yep, I'm proud to say it. we are going to go as fans, and it's going to be really, really cool. Uh, Ring of Honor, good, good stuff. Uh, All Pro Wrestling, very good, solid promotion. Uh, you know, the Indies are starting to make a con. They've always been there. It's just, if it's not WWE, it's an Indie because you don't have national TV or whatever. And I tend to argue that because, you know, all pro wrestling has been in existence for a long, long time. Uh, big time wrestling for quite a while as well. Not the Shires version, but the Kirk White version as well. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, you just got to kind of take the good with the bad and that type of thing and, uh, the Indies, some of them tried to duplicate what WWE is doing, doing, which I'm proud to say ain't going to happen with me. I will not, no, I will not duplicate anything at WWE. It's no disrespect. It's, once again, I don't care to insult the fans' intelligence, and it's all about professional wrestling. Uh, for example, you know, the show coming up March 30th, or even though the past five, if you're a fan of professional wrestling, come on the road with Acres and enjoy the ride. You're going to be on for one hell of a ride. But if you're a fan of sports entertainment, come on out anyway. Uh, as Bill Cosby, as Fat Albert would say, be careful, you might learn something. All right, Glenn, I'm going to pass the microphone over to you for, uh, for any more questions. Well, actually, it's, uh, I looked at the wall, the clock on the wall. I, we, we've gone Broadway. Oh, the old timekeeper. We gone Broadway. The old timekeeper is giving me the old stink eye, which means it's time to wrap up for this week's edition of Wrestling Memories. Of course, we're gonna have to welcome Joe Sousa back on again in the not too distant future. We'll have to have a themed episode where we'll uh, share some old wrestling mem wrestling memories. Uh, uh, you know, from, from personal I, standpoint. If I, Glenn, if I if I may, real quick, can I do a plug or two, real quick, for a few seconds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say before we go, the floor is yours. Oh, oh, okay. Well, first and foremost. Uh, Indeed, a pleasure to be on. Uh, Mike, great to work with you once again. Glenn, uh, pleasure's all mine. And for any of uh, the folks out there listening that want to get in contact with me, you go to Facebook. Uh, the name Joe Sousa, J-O-E-S-O-U-S-A. Uh, you'll find me. I'm wearing my old school San Jose Earthquake soccer jersey, and I'm surrounded by my three beautiful kids, Jessica, Patty, and Michael. Uh, You'll, you'll, you'll see us. And also, please like the Rumble in the Redwoods Pro Wrestling fan page. Uh, there's lots of content. There's lots of photos, video, uh, the show from this past March, as well as last year in its entirety, you know, there. And once again, the next one, Saturday night, March the 30th, 2019, Rumble in Redwoods 6 at Redwood Acres Fairgrounds in Eureka, California. I've already secured uh, the people that are going to be doing the commercial. I've secured the people that are going to film the show with a five-camera high-definition crew. 
Whew, good, good stuff. And, you know, my my daughters will be in the ring to introduce me. And my wife, Arlene, she runs the security like an iron fist. And real quick, a shout out to my wife, Arlene, uh, married of 22 years, a wedding anniversary yesterday. I mentioned she's Mrs. Joe, and that happened from several years ago at a WCWC show, which I used to work at. And the dressing room always forgot her name, so they just started calling her Mrs. Joe, and it stuck. So there you go. Well, it's time for us to go. A big thank you to Mr. Joe Souza for coming on the program. And, of course, a big thank you to my co-host, Mike McCurdy. This has been Wrestling Memories on Pioneer 90.1.